Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Today, the MacArthur Memorial is hosting Joanne Buckley and Doug Fisher, the authors of the book African American Doctors of World War I, The Lives of 104 Volunteers. It's so wonderful to have you both here with us today, and we're very excited to talk about your book. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We're delighted to be here and have the opportunity. I'd like to start off with something that maybe a lot of Americans are not very familiar with at this point. Tell us the situation of African Americans in the United States about 1917 when America enters the war. In 1917, the African-American community was rural, concentrated in the South, and illiteracy was quite widespread. Poverty abounded, and many were seeking jobs in the industrial North and in the Midwest in what became known as the Great Migration. Churches were the focus of African-American community life. Segregation was institutionalized, and most African-Americans lacked opportunities. Interestingly, the foreign immigration into the United States declined dramatically in 1917 uh, because of the war in Europe, and jobs that the immigrants would have filled were opening up to African-American laborers. Cities like Chicago, Detroit, New York, and Philadelphia were attracting black labor. Educational opportunities were limited, and a few segregated institutions shouldered the burden of educating the communities. The famous Tuskegee Institute down in Tuskegee, Alabama, trained many teachers and provided a lot of vocational training for uh, African Americans. But training in the professions, such as medicine and and the law, uh, were very limited. As the U.S. was drawn into the war in 1917, many African Americans saw an opportunity to improve their condition by serving their country. And, of course, segregation in the military was institutionalized at that point. It had been since the Civil War, and even before. I read a statistic the other day that said that in 1917, African Americans made 10% of the population, but in World War I, they make up 13% of the military. Can you give us a little bit more background on maybe their enthusiasm for service? What are they really hoping to gain? Well, they are now free men. They have had certainly more freedom than they did before the Civil War. But I think that you'd have to say that the majority of them looked at this as a way to learn a skill, as well as serve their country, to have a paycheck that was probably a little more steady than the ones that they were able to get in some of the rural areas. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, There was a sense of patriotism, but there was also a sense of opportunity here, and there's a little prestige that goes along with the uniform and being able to serve your country. So I think it was all of those elements blended. When African Americans joined the Army in particular, what kind of jobs did they have? What kind of treatment did they face? Well, initially, they were the stevedores. They were the people who were, you know, working in the shipyards. They were the ones who were going to go to Europe to work on the roads. But there was a great deal of, um, what would you say, lobbying, Agitation and lobbying. By those in Washington or at the universities to open up the role to them being in combat units as well as just in supply. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing. 
then the idea of having black officers began to be lobbied around Washington. And after that, after it was finally decided that they would set up an officer, line officers training camp at Fort Des Moines, there was another wave of lobbying to bring in the doctors who had been trying to join the Medical Reserve Corps and were having no luck getting into the military. So that, that was why the, the camp started so late. Our doctors didn't get there until August, and then they oh, were wow. shipped out to the next camp. The camp ended in November, early November. November. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't much training going on there. About the majority of the training was the doctors training the medics who went in with them, and the doctors learning Army paperwork. So whatever they took to the camp, in terms of their surgical skills and whatever, that wasn't part of the training. They were already doctors, and whatever skills they had then, that's what they took to France. Because the military is segregated at this point, for African-American combat troops, you needed African-American surgeons, doctors, medics, or were these African-American surgeons taking care of anybody wounded? Depended. Most in the 92nd, which was our, that was the one division that stayed full, they would be taking care of their troops. They would be taking care of the African Americans in the 92nd Division, which was a total black combat division. The 93rd, when they arrived in France, were early and they were turned over to the French. Their helmets, their gear, everything, guns were all French. And those doctors would care for whoever was on the line. But they were all African-American units. There were white doctors who also Mm -hmm. cared for the the, uh, black troops. I don't think there were cases that we know of where there were black doctors caring for white troops. So they were segregated throughout. They were in a segregated training camp. They were in a segregated combat unit or segregated labor units, whatever they were in. Uh, And that was consistent throughout the war. You mentioned the French... Um, Can you describe how these African-American doctors were received by the French? And maybe in what ways did it differ from their reception, maybe in the United States Army? I think the sense that uh, the French, of course, welcomed Americans, period. Right. They loved loved having us arrive. And the black troops were very well received by the, uh, the French people. There's not a sense of discrimination and racism in France at that time. They were familiar with colonial troops. They had many colonial troops. They did have white officers in many cases for many of the colonial troops. The French did. But they were quite comfortable working with the African troops. The French really embraced all of them, regardless of race. And many of the black soldiers commented on how warmly they were received by the French whether it was in Paris where James Europe's band was playing or whether it was on the battlefields where they were filling in French units. So they, they were very warmly received over there by the French community. What's the name of that movie? We were just watching it again. That came, was re-released in 1977. Men of Bronze. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful story of the 93rd there, and it ends with them all get with them getting their quartiers presented to them just an extraordinary film, and you, it actually looks like a newsreel. And we have urged people that if you've got an hour, you can buy it online. It's worth looking at to learn about this part of the war. And the title is? Men of Bronze. Men of Bronze. Yeah. 
Moving back to uh, your book for a minute, you write about these African-American doctors that served overseas during World War One. Do you want to tell us about just a few of the men that you profile in your book? All right, let's stay with the 93rd for a minute. Irving Bass was born in Richmond. His father was a tailor, and he, he worked as a salesman in a clothing shop. And Irving, actually, when he was young, was working there also. From there, he went on to school, he went to medical school, and he came back to Richmond initially, married, and then became the first African-American physician in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, his wife had three children when he volunteered for service and went to France. He was sent with the 93rd under the French, and while taking care of the troops, in no man's land, his legs were blown off and he was killed. His body was ultimately, after quite some time, returned home. He's the first African-American buried in the National Cemetery in Fredericksburg. And in Shiloh, New Shiloh Baptist Church there in Fredericksburg, there's an enormous, beautiful stained glass window that the community put up to honor him. It's a 15 foot high, enormous stained yeah, window. We're seeing. This guy's beautifully colored. I mean, it's quite a tribute. Mm -hmm. uh, the community obviously was very proud and very sad to lose mm -hmm. their first doctor, but they lost him heroically. One of the stories we heard was that when his legs were blown off by the artillery, that he was still alive for a while and was trying to direct the medics in how to stem the blood flow to, so he would survive. But unfortunately, he wasn't able to, so he died there on the battlefield. But he was awarded a Croix de Guerre uh, medal by the French uh, for his service and for and his bravery. the U.S., he also got a distinguished service cross. His family didn't do very well for a while after the war. As you can imagine, his wife was young. She had three young children. But ultimately, um, she went home to her family in Raleigh, uh, another, the vast, the vast family, and lived there. And his son became a doctor also. Urbane Bass Jr. became a physician <laughs> and uh, quite prominent yes. and well-known. So there was, he had a legacy. He did have a legacy. A great legacy. Yeah. Yes. I always talk about Ward. Dr. Ward was from Indianapolis. And, uh, Not originally. Well, that's right. He was from Wilson, North Carolina. His mother had been a slave. He was illiterate, and he was illegitimate. And he decided at age 13 to leave Wilson, North Carolina, and make his way to Indianapolis. 13 years old, he goes off by himself, and he gets a job working in the stable, taking care of the horses for a physician there in town who must have seen extraordinary things with him because he took him into the house and he taught him to read. And then this physician had his own medical school there. And so he put Dr. Ward through medical school there. And then he went on to a normal, regular medical school and opened a hospital there in Indianapolis. And when he married, one of the people that he helped became Madam C.J. Walker, and she was selling her hair care products out of his living room at first, and then ultimately set up her factory there. He became her personal physician for the rest of her life. So She was the first African-American millionaire. Millionaire, yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. So after the war, he stayed in the National Corps, in the... Um, Reserves. Reserves, and rose to the rank of Colonel. Colonel. After that, he was chosen to be the first African-American 
to lead a VA hospital. So they, oh, there was a VA hospital being run by white doctors and white staff in Tuskegee, Alabama, on the same grounds as the Tuskegee Institute, and he was assigned that. He brought together many of the doctors that he had served with in France to be on staff there. So he was there for a number of years before ultimately going back to Indianapolis, his hospital, and his life there. So that was another first. He was quite a leader. Very very accomplished people. Mm -hmm. Do you find that across the board with a lot of those doctors? I mean, it couldn't have been easy to get a medical degree as an African-American prior to 1917. Very challenging. Fortunately, there were two black medical schools that still exist, uh, one in Washington, D.C., called Howard University Medical School, and one in Nashville, Tennessee, called Meharry Medical College. There were several other, I mean, a number of other medical schools as well that no longer exist. Uh, There was a large one down in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, part of Shaw University, called Leonard Medical School, but it was forced to close for financial reasons, I think. But these, there was an opportunity for these doctors to get a medic, medical education in those schools. Only a handful of the 104 that we write about were able to go to what we would call, I guess, white schools. A couple of people went to Harvard. One went to the University of Vermont. Two went to Columbia. Columbia University in New York. University yeah. of Illinois. Mm-hmm. So there were a handful that were able to go, but it was not easy. They were poor. They worked hard. They struggled. They got scholarships. They and worked while they were in med school. Yes, they worked. I mean, it was a struggle. You were absolutely right. And almost all of them struggled. Struggled against all odds, really. One doctor that I'd love to tell you about is uh, Dr. Jonathan N. Rucker, who was uh, a Mississippi doctor originally. He'd come from Natchez, Mississippi, out there on the Mississippi River, and uh, his grandfather was a white man on a plantation. His mother was a slave. His grandmother, I'm sorry, was a slave. And uh, then he was raised in the white community, but as a mulatto. He was educated in a black school. Uh, His mother was an educator. His wife was an educator. She was a Tuskegee graduate. Uh, So the whole, all of the success in that family was really built around education. His father was a preacher. He became a, a minister as well. And he went during the early part of the 20th century he made his way from Natchez, which was kind of a disaster at that point economically. The boll weevils were eating the cotton, and the oil fields hadn't developed yet, and the forests had been plundered, and it was a bad time. So he made his way up to Memphis, just followed the Mississippi River north, and uh, got jo- odd jobs there, working in hotels and working for shoe repair people, and that's whatever you could do to, to earn a little money, and then made his way from Memphis to Nashville. Nashville was where the Meharry School was, and also Walden University, another African-American school. He worked his way through there. He got his college degree there. He got his Doctor of Divinity there, uh, and then went on to the medical school and earned his medical degree. Wow, what a hard thing to do. He married a woman from his hometown in Natchez, and they settled in a little town in about 30 miles from Nashville where they needed a black doctor. The little town was called Gallatin, and he started taking care of the people there, and that from there is where he actually volunteered to serve in the First World War. He served with my grandfather, so he was my, our discovery into this whole world of these doctors. Uh, my, he was the, one of the younger doctors at that point, and there was a photograph of him that we encountered, and we, found, we stumbled across in the National Archives, had the same name as the doctor that was in my father, grandfather's unit. Uh, 
We called and, and made a connection through a telephone operator in Natchez, Mississippi. He said, do you have anybody there named Rucker? Because this picture said he was from Natchez. They said, yes, we have one. So we said, look, could you call him, please? This is one of these 411 directory assistance calls. And a woman answered the phone, and I said, you have no idea who I am, but I'm trying to find out some information about Dr. Jonathan Rucker. She said, well, he was my husband's brother. Wow, we made a connection. I said, I know a lot about him from the First World War, but I know nothing about his life after the First World War. And she said, well, he had ten children, and all of them went to college in Mississippi, in Tennessee in those years, in a segregated society. Wow, what an accomplishment. Uh, so, yes, there were a lot of great stories that come out of this, uh, and that's certainly one of them, and that's the one that incented us to get the whole program going. We have a lot, a lot of the families that we've uncovered, and we go to meet them and talk with them and gather, mm-hmm. see what they know, and then share what we know. So it's been a, a wonderful voyage of discovery. You've mentioned your sources a little bit. Did many of these doctors leave behind letters about the war or diaries maybe about their experiences? Where do you find most of your information about their World War I experiences? Well, you find some in the Army records. Uh, if we look in the Surgeon General's records and then the divisional records from the war, and we find references to them, uh, some of them actually wrote reports because they were commanders, they were officers, and they were commanding medical detachments and field hospitals and so on. So, so their reports still exist, so they describe situations that were there. Uh, but these are very uh, brisk reports usually, that sort of thing. We had a couple that wrote reports for the newspaper. Yes, Dr. Ballard wrote Ballard a report. Ballard did, which was really interesting because when we met Ballard's son, He was very angry with his father because he really never talked about his war experience. And His father was quite a hero. His father was quite a hero. And while, I don't know whether to tell this or not, but while we were visiting, his his grandson wanted us to meet, you know, his father. And so while we were visiting with them and telling them about his father's story and what all he did when he was in France, he asked the son to go upstairs in the guest room and pulled out from under the bed what was his award of the Croix de Guerre. And it was the painting of him with the laurel leaves and everything that he had. It was covered in dust and everything. And he'd never brought it out and shared it with his son. But, you know, he just didn't understand how his father could be so different after the war. Since we had, my grandmother was a nurse and my grandfather was a sergeant in the war. His grandfather was an officer in the war. We know when they came home, they were, it was a horrendous experience. And my grandmother made us promise that we would never go into nursing. That was the reaction that you got, you know, when they talked, if, if they talked about the war. Rucker never talked about the war to his children either. He did a little bit. He would put on, uh, on Armistice Day, on Remembrance Days, he would put on his uniform and go to the schools to mm-hmm. tell the children about the war. Mm-hmm. That was sort of a history lesson. He wasn't telling the gory details of, right. of life and the struggles right. and so on. But he was teaching the kids about the role of, that he'd had and other people should have in the nation mm-hmm. and, and helping the nation survive. There was one other doctor, Dr. William Dyer, 
who wrote uh, a nice piece for his wife, uh, Bess. And uh, it's in the Schoenberg Research Center in New York City, uh, part of their New York Public Library up there. Uh, and he wrote a, a nice, nice piece. I can't remember. It's 15 pages long, typewritten. Uh, it was handwritten, but they transcribed mm -hmm. it. In any case, he described his experience uh, in detail, and it's kind of like a letter home, only it was uh, more of a summary. Yes. And that provided a good background and a good sense of it. Plus, my grandfather, since he was with these doctors, his diaries and his letters have already been seen on public television. A&E did a thing on Letters Home and used some of my grandfather's letters as part of that program. Uh, that has been, uh, you know, it's very easy to sort of create the atmosphere around there, plus the photographs that we've been able to collect. Yes, we've been able to collect photographs, National Archives, through them various medical societies, and in strange and wonderful place, Schoenberg, that we've used, we've, included in the book. We've included almost 100 photographs in the book, mm -hmm. so it really does bring it to life in a different way than the, the single mm -hmm. word would. At the beginning of this podcast, we talked a little bit about what America was like in 1917 for African Americans. What can you tell us maybe about the immediate aftermath of World War I for African Americans? Well, I think the African Americans uh, were very disappointed. There were riots. There were there was a lot of discrimination after the war. Uh, there were opportunities for some as well. I mean, Harlem was a great place in New York for artists and and people, entertainers and and professional people to gather. But those were pockets of places. Most of the people were very disappointed because they expected to be recognized for their service when they came home. Instead, everything kind of rolled back to where it had been before the war. So the discrimination, the segregation, everything uh, really didn't change. Uh, it was very unfortunate and it was very disturbing mm -hmm. because they felt like they'd, the, the African-American community felt as if it had earned a place in society that society wouldn't offer to it or wouldn't allow it to have. It was very disappointing. And there, so there were riots in some of the cities. Violence. When you get into the Depression and everything, I mean, we have Garvin who really is making it in Cleveland, and he was a doctor who was had making enough money to move into a white neighborhood on the east side of Cleveland. And so after they moved into this brand new house, some group comes by and throws a bomb into his window, and he picks it up and throws it back out the window. Well, the police came. It didn't. It didn't detonate. The police came and detonated it, and they said that it would have blown up his whole house. But then we have other places in Tulsa, race riots there. Some of our doctors were involved in that. Just a terrible time in our history. The black community in that time was really forced to create a parallel universe, as I describe it. All of the institutions that the white society had existed in the, white, in the black society, but they were totally segregated. You had all the fraternal organizations, the professional organizations, you had the American Medical Association. Black doctors were not allowed to be members of that, so they created the National Medical Association. The same thing with legal associations. The same, I mean, every there was just a parallel structure. Even uh, the churches. The churches, yes. Yes, we're not integrated to a large extent. If people want to learn more about your book and the different doctors that are featured in it, what do they need to do? It's uh, African American Doctors of World War One, and you can find it on Amazon right now. 
Well, thank you very much for sitting down with us today and sharing your knowledge about these very, very interesting men that served in World War I. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.